I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly, brought to you in association with Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey here, dialed in from my living room in Cork. Uh, the Jazz Weekend is in full swing and thanks be to God we had a little bit of entertainment after what was a disgracefully boring uh, World Cup semi-final between Wales and South Africa. We're going to dig into that with Owen Tulin and Murray Kinsella as well as England's sublime victory over the All Blacks. I heard a few people talking about the result afterwards and how they were somewhat surprised that England were able to get the job done so comprehensively in the end. I think that may have been where the surprise was, just the fact that, okay, like the toil and physical effort and brutality was unbelievable, but they still had a bit of a cushion and it looked maybe even a little bit comfortable to an extent, whereas everybody was expecting it to be at at most a a one-score game. Um, where was the uh, the winning and losing of the game for your cell phone? I'm sure you were an interested observer. Uh, Murray, you picked England to win the game and you've picked them to win the World Cup since the start of the tournament, so we'll get your thoughts as well in a second. But um, for you, Owen, yeah, w- what was the winning and losing of it? I definitely think the winning of it was a start, really. I think it was obviously absolutely critical that they got off to um, a strong start and kind of apply that scoreboard pressure early in the game, which I think they did really well. I think their execution, uh, particularly of that that first line-out launch, I think was was almost perfection. How they set a kind of narrow target first phase with uh, Manu Tuolangi and then Curry around the corner second phase and and as I thought Ireland might do as well against New Zealand was to go after that wide channel third phase and look to to get at Moanga and those wider defenders and they did it perfectly like um, Johnny May just comes on forwards outside shoulder and kind of drags in Goodhue um, and now Moang is left with a one-on-one on um, Elliot Daly and, and and misses the tackle straight up and, and Daly throws a beautiful offload to Watson at the right edge and almost immediately England are on their front foot and kind of into their attacking shape and and then there's just some unbelievable bits of work right from Elliot Daly again so he, he threw that offload for the Watson line break and then the next phase England go wide to wide and it's Elliot Daly that's on the receiving end of um, Farrell's pass so he's worked probably 50 metres in about five seconds to get to the other edge and provide that overlap on the left-hand side. And then, as me and Murray have been talking about quite a lot through the tournament, the ability of their forwards to play those short little tips. Um, it was a great little tip from Laws um, to Sinclair to punch through the middle. And then, I guess, the evolution of England's game is that cha- uh, changing that point of contact, Sinclair offloading through contact to forward, um, come around the corner again. And again, it's Laws next phase. So another great bit of work rate from Laws to carry and then Manu Tulangi uh, goes over the try line I just don't think England could have envisaged a better start and, and that kind of accuracy um, kind of continued in that opening quarter and really just applied a huge amount of pressure on um, on New Zealand from the get-go Yeah Murray what impressed you most about England? I definitely go along with that it was interesting that afterwards Eddie Jones compared he compared it to an F1 race. He said, you got to start strong against the, the All Blacks or else you're kind of stuck at the back of the pack and you're struggling to get out in front again. Thought it was a really nice analogy and clearly they put a lot of focus on that. They look so well prepped as Owen's kind of gone through there to, to take advantage of that. On, on top of that, they also had some big defensive plays earlier on and, and that really set a tone as well. John Mitchell, the defence coach, takes a lot of credit. They're, they were superb without the ball. And you think of George Ford, the smallest guy on the pitch, a, p- a perceived weakness in the defensive line. He strips Nepo Laulala in the first couple of minutes, actually probably their first defensive set proper, um, stripping the tight end prop and making a big statement like that. Then very soon after, you have Manu Tuolagi just getting up hard out of the 13 channel and picking off Bowden Barrett's pass, intercepting it. He himself and Farrell do brilliantly to put Johnny May into space down the left. Now, Scott Barrett does superbly uh, to show his pace to cover back. I think Johnny May was probably carrying that injury into the game and possibly would have finished that fully fit. But that just kind of sowed the seeds of doubt in Kiwi minds because that's two big defensive plays early on and particularly the second one of those. Like two laggy, I, I, I'm probably guilty of it as much as anyone. I, I always tend to focus on his ball carrying, his threat and attack. But his defensive work in this game was absolutely superb. He made that early play, kind of set out a stall, said, I'm going to be in your eye line all day. And you saw a couple of times that 
Moanga probably ducked back inside because Tuolagi was there, he was waiting, or even the, the threat of him waiting there. And it just, you know, the All Blacks rarely play with doubt. They always throw that pass. But this time they, they felt they had to maybe be a little bit more conservative with those because because of that early um, early tackle, early intercept rather. And then I think Ford and Farrell defended really well in their channel. Like Ford ended up with 13 tackles. I think Farrell was 15 and and they really weren't a weakness. Certainly Ford stepped up really uh, impressively to to make those tackles. And then you had the big hitters like Sam Underhill. I think he finished with 16 tackles. And, and you think of the big moments he had. That one on Kieran Reid was absolutely huge. Just a, an emphatic, brilliant uh, technique in the tackle um, and a, a, just a moment of, of physical dominance. There was a Toje hammering white lock. Obviously Underhill also did Jordy Barrett and, and turned the ball over down the New Zealand 22 as they, they got a little bit panicky. And and then that work rate that Owen mentions as well, that, that daily example is brilliant. You saw that in defence as well, though. You think of the amount of times that the English had to scramble and Tuolagi maybe covering across on Reese that time when they tackled him uh, very close to their own try line. That was super scramble there. There was one instance in, the, I think it was the 73rd minute where Owen, Owen Farrell, he was just sublime because he was hurting early on with that that tie, uh, the cork, as Eddie Jones called it. He got a dead leg. But in the 73rd minute, you see him, he folds from one side of the ruck all the way to the edge on the opposite edge, the left-hand side, and he makes a tackle on Sonny Bill Williams. And if he wasn't there, no one would have noticed, but he prevents a line break and a possible kind of late r- rally from the All Blacks. And then two phases, la- two phases later, Sevilla gets on the ball and he smashes through George Cruz, and there's Owen Farrell waiting. He collars him with Billy Vonohola and puts him over the touchline. Um, and then even fittingly, I think the game finished with the English kind of hounding the Kiwis back into their 22, and uh, Artie Savea knocks on in the end. So um, all in all, a, a stunning defensive performance. Yeah, it was stunning. Sorry, sorry Gav, just cool. to kind of continue that point from mm-hmm. Murray. I thought Farrell's comment po- post-game about how they set up for the hacker about that they they didn't want to set up in one line and allow New Zealand come at them. And I think that was very evident in their defence, how John Mitchell obviously gave licence to certain players to shoot out of the line and kind of preempt those kind of two to three pass sequences that New Zealand likes so well. And I, and I thought that was, it was just a point, poignant statement and it was a statement of intent in the game, how England defended New Zealand that and didn't allow New Zealand's attack to come at them wave after wave, as we and we probably saw the the previous week, and and really just kind of rattled New Zealand. And I think a really interesting point is in that opening half, New Zealand only got past three phases once in the entire half, so they were not able to sustain any pressure on England or or kind of build kind of phase after phase and kind of wear England down, and I guess kind of kill them by a thousand cuts and. And as Murray's already said, their defensive scramble and their line speed was just absolutely superb. I think I think I did a stat that uh, New Zealand were pushed out of play into touch five times in a game, which is which is almost unseen from New Zealand teams to to die in into touch with the ball. Uh, and then yeah. the other the the other what I think New Zealand will regret a little bit is how they're a little bit naive about when they got to the edge. And then they wanted to play off 10 and, and 10 hit a forward and that forward tips on. So those three pass sequences against that kind of rush defence was was actually causing New Zealand trouble and was probably preventing them from creating any momentum. And I think if, if Ian Foster had his time over again, I think he'd look at different ways to try and break down that, that um, England defence because the line speed was just denying New Zealand that, that stretch in their attack that, that normally causes teams so much trouble. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating point, even on on the hacker, because we were we were surprised we, we kind of see them kind of spreading into this formation and wandering up into the New Zealand half and looking at each other. What's what's going on here? But if you think about it, really, for the Kiwis, it must have been a strange experience as well, because they like all across their eye line, there's just white jerseys, and that kind of I, I think you're right there on that kind of summed up the defensive performance because in their peripheral vision all the time there was someone shooting there was someone hammering up to put pressure on them and just making them doubt themselves and I thought it was a pretty cool thing to do before the match you were so right though you said after they did it now they got to back this up and, yeah. and they did it with the start obviously um, but it, it was a it was a it was a really kind of symbolic thing that they did I would imagine a lot of thought went into that um, from Jones and the leaders we don't know exactly who it was but it was fitting that their defensive performance certainly married up to that the, the work rate as well and kick chase and things like that was just off the charts they're such simple things that everyone should be doing all the time but you look back through that game and, and the amount of pressure they applied even 
off the back of their excellent kicking game. It was just it was suffocating for for the All Blacks. Your dad, right, Murray? And I think I think we might t- touch on our kicking maybe a little bit later. But what New Zealand are renowned for is their counter attack, and what allows their counter attack to perform so well is their front line defenders anticipate the kick early and are kind of in retreat mode before the kick has even taken place. But England's kick chase was actually outworking New Zealand's retreat the entire game. So they were they were beating New Zealand's retreat back to the point of where the kick landed. And now when New Zealand's second phase tried to get to width, they were, they were just shut down by a wall of England defenders. And I thought that was a really, really key part of England's first kick plan, but also the pressure they exerted through the defence by they made a conscious effort of beating New Zealand's retreat back every time and denying them those counter-attack opportunities. Yeah, well, let's elaborate on the kicking now then. I, I think um, one of the interesting facets of the All Blacks game throughout the tournament is that they've been kicking the ball fairly regularly, even when it looks as though they're playing a kind of a, a swashbuckling, amazing brand of rugby. And we knew as well coming into the game probably since that uh, Six Nations opener in Dublin actually that England just have an array of options um, in their back line with regards to kicking in behind an opposition defence and it's not so much about um, well for the last you know eight nine months it hasn't really been about just uh, up and unders and and a traditional kick chase but they've actually been a little bit more cute in, in how they've gone about it and yet against New Zealand they seem to actually play not dissimilarly to Ireland like a lot of box kicks from Ben Youngs uh, but they just seem to get off after the ball uh, incredibly cleverly and uh, well essentially on yeah but I thought there was key variation that kind of it definitely made uh, New Zealand's back three second guess what they were trying to do, especially with forward Farrell access. There's a lot of real estate to cover in backfield when when you've got to not only read the cues of the 10 and where he might kick, but also the 12 because he's a genuine kick option. And we talked about England's launch plays. Their first four launch plays were varied through their attacking game. And then that fifth line out, Ford just receives the ball and kicks a reverse kick uh, back over his left shoulder and gets over the top of uh, Seve Reese. Uh, and once you get Reese retreating backfield, he's a very different player. And, and he literally just shoveled the ball onto Bowden Barrett and Bowden kicked out just outside of 22. So, so automatically that puts a bit of doubt in uh, New Zealand's backfield. And as the game progressed, with England's attacking kicks, they found grass seven times. So on seven occasions, they were able to find space either in behind the wingers or down the middle of the fit pitch, which I think exposed Bowden Barrett's positioning at time and full back. And then one really interesting one I'd like to talk about was England's 14th line out. They, uh, it was in the second half and, and they went to a mall just outside New Zealand's 22. And they really, really cleverly use Anthony Watson in behind the mall. He, he's kind of, he's checking whether he can go open or blind. And as Ben Youngs pulls the ball out, Watson comes back down the short side. And what that does is it holds up Jordy Barrett, who was on the left wing at that time. So he's got to check the short side for Watson's run. And then England actually dummy the blind side and go open side to Farrell, who is one of those kind of trademark, takes it to the line and then pulls it back to George Ford. And then George Ford shifts it to uh, Slade, who's on at 15 at this time. And now Bowden Barrett's had to to close early to kind of uh, shut down the threat that England are, are kind of posing with their attacking game. So he closes early and Slade, plays a grubber in behind in backfield and because of what they've done to Jordy Barrett early with the kind of Watson deception there's a huge amount of kick space in behind and and Reese, to be fair to him does incredibly well to recover the ball um, if, if he hasn't Daly's going to score in the left corner but again it was just a really really nice example of, of the kind of the thought and the imagination that England put into their attack and, and how to try and expose New Zealand's backfield I thought they did a really really good job of it Would you see South Africa being similarly susceptible to that Murray and with that in mind would you suggest that George Ford will retain his starting place for the final and uh, they'll start with Owen Farrell at 12 as well uh, yeah I wouldn't I actually wouldn't take that as a given just yet um, mm. I think I think Jones has shown he'll pick it on its merits for this specific game as well Um I think they'll have a different plan for South Africa but the thing is I think they will have a plan they've shown that now the quality of teams they've beaten along the way and the, the, the manner of having a different plan each time. And, you know, Farrell was the man attending against Australia. That worked particularly well in that game. Ford and Farrell was just a supreme combination in this game. I thought Ford's kicking was just, was really excellent. I mean, that that one where Jordy Barrett 
attempts to run out and Underhill hammers him. It's a lovely kick from forward into the right corner, just clips that kind of diagonal on, onto the grass, as, as Owen mentions there. Um, and then Jordy Barrett probably kind of summing up the slight loss of composure by the All Blacks. He's trying to scramble it out and he forces the offload away and, and they turn it over. Um, I thought that, that kicking was brilliant, but I thought just overall the, the whole plan was so good now obviously Eddie Jones and his coaching team were building up to this for two and a half years as he mentions and they knew they were going to have to try and beat the All Blacks to win a World Cup but I thought they just deconstructed the All Blacks so well took them to places they weren't comfortable made them do things that they probably hadn't even planned to do um, and they had that loss of composure then because they were in an uncomfortable position they hadn't been in I think the the plan for South Africa will certainly be slightly different but the foundations that England showed even without having to specifically plan were, were brilliant I mean their line out obviously it was tweaked and I'm not as familiar with their line out so I don't know exactly how it was tweaked but there was such variety in it such movement in it the players were lauding Steve, Steve Worthwick afterward for his plan I mean Maratoja really stepped up calling that he's grown into that role and just in, even if you look at who actually caught the ball, he he had seven catches in the line-out laws at six. Curry, who in the past hasn't really been a line-out forward and has developed that side of his game really well, he had three and Cruz had two. They all won ball. And some of them were really clean. Some of them must have been so satisfying for England because the All Blacks are up competing in the wrong area of the line-out. Now, obviously, the, the one error they made led to the All Blacks only try of the game. And, and I think Curry probably just missed his his lift on the back of a toje very slightly, but that's all, all you need in, a, in an area like that. Overall, they won 18 lineouts and lost two. I was almost a little bit surprised that the All Blacks kept, kept kicking the ball off, off the pitch because clearly the, the English had spent so much time on this set-piece attack. Owen mentions some of the superb examples there. Um, and I felt, well, they'll, they'll be better to keep the ball on the pitch here and, and maybe try and beat England that way with the, with the ball in play for a, for a lot of time. So that area of the game was excellent for, for England. And then the ball carrying forwards aren't going to go away either, no matter who you're playing. The box will probably be feeling that they're more capable of dealing with those threats, but it is just awesome to see England where, you know, one of the playmates, he can hit any of the forward back, really. All of them can carry powerfully, explosively. They all have pretty good footwork. It's just a ridiculous array of power. Um, Billy Vunapola obviously led the way as usual. He had 17 carries for... I think it was an average of 2.1 metres gained. Tom Curry was three metres on average gained in his nine carries. And Itoje was over two metres as well. But all of the Mako, Bunapola, George Sinclair, who has that ability to pass as well. He's one of the, the ball handling forwards, along with probably Mako and Billy Bunapola in particular. And, and that Laws example was brilliant as well. So they can, they can threaten you with their ball carrying. I thought it was really clever the way a couple of times they tipped onto the front door as well. Just to remind... The, the All Blacks defence that they weren't going to go out the back with those screen plays every single time and then you have to respect that front door option a little bit more so that the variety of it was really nice as well so all those things are, are going to be relevant against the box again um, as are the, the the sheer work rate levels and, and the leadership of someone like Farrell who was just a, a competitor there was one moment where Whitelock's trying to go for a choke tackle and Owen Farrell smashes in up on his chest like a second row and kind of niggles him on the ground then as well uh, Eddie Jones was saying afterwards it would have taken a samurai sword to get that guy off the pitch um, and he just summed up the kind of fighting fighting spirit of the English because they won all those 50-50 kind of scraps on the ground as well and, and they'll take as much pride in that as anything because the All Blacks generally don't lose those yeah, one of the things that you've both mentioned is how you were surprised to see New Zealand do certain things, like watching them getting tackled over the touchline five times or kicking the ball off the field so often, even when England's lineup was operating so smoothly and they were getting great purchase off the back of it. Um, I'm wondering how much on like <laughs> that pattern was nearly determined by what you were saying at the start of the podcast and how just how strongly England began the game, where they won a psychological battle early doors and so sort of set the tone and New Zealand weren't able to kind of wrestle that uh, momentum, dangerous word, back off them. And and how uncharacteristic that is as well for a Kiwi team. It's probably probably literally 2007 really since we've seen them in certainly in a World Cup game. Um, but even in, in general competitive games lose, like really comprehensively lose that psychological battle as well. Yeah. And I, there was a 
couple of interesting things in the second half because New Zealand were definitely like England absolutely played well but New Zealand were definitely causing England problems like when you when you look at some of the key metrics is like defenders beaten and clean breaks I think New Zealand have doubled the amount of clean breaks as England had they've beaten 34 defenders compared to England's 20 uh, so they were definitely stressing England in moments of the game so I, I think it would be a little bit one eye to suggest that England absolutely dominated affairs but there, there was a couple of key moments in the second half because what New Zealand are are so often hugely dominant is off turnover possession. It's 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 often said if you give New Zealand turnover ball, they're likely to either line break or score. And in the second half, there was two double turnovers. And what I mean by that is New Zealand have turned over England. Um, the first one, Reese gets on the end end of the turnover and and they're trying to break out of their twenty two, and then he throws a fifty fifty offload and gives gives England possession back, and then. England get a penalty off that it's when they go to the line out uh, they go to the mall and Ben Youngs breaks off the back of it to score the try and, and it gets disallowed by uh, the TMO for a knock on in the mall um, but then moments later it's uh, England's line out England turn it over first phase off a kind of sloppy enough five man play New Zealand get the ball, go to the edge, but now it's Curry that wins the ball back at the breakdown. England go through a couple of phases. Reid is penalised for tackling Munapolo off the ball. And all of a sudden, it's uh, three more points to England and it goes 13-0. So England got the, the ideal start to the second half. But with those normally with those two turnovers, New Zealand are going to make you pay. But on, on this case, it was England that got the first score after halftime, which was, which was so crucial and... and was definitely a sign that New Zealand were were rattled by that kind of early pressure that um, that England had, um, I guess, imposed on New Zealand. And, and we often say it, once once you apply scoreboard pressure to New Zealand, the pressures become very very different, and and they can't play with that flow that they're so used to. And um, it was definitely evident in that second half. There was just a couple of key moments. I thought the other one, which was the the penalty uh, New Zealand had been awarded, and then. Sam White like gets uh, the penalty gets reversed. Uh, Marius Yonker intervenes as a TMO and reverses the penalty for a Sam Whitelock kind of shove in the face of Owen Farrell. Like at that point in the game, at sixteen seven, it's going to be New Zealand's possession. All of a sudden, it's reversed. It's a penalty to England. England kicked a touch and off that mall, they get it. They get another penalty, and that they uh, push out the score to 19-7 so it goes from a point where it's 16-7 there's 20 still, twenty minutes still to be played to 19-7 and now New Zealand are chasing again so th- there was definitely some kind of pivotal moments in that second half and even all the all the 50-50s, the kind of kicks that any bounces off kicks England seem to be collecting. I thought there was a poignant moment in the first half when uh, when Bridge uh, tries to keep the, I think Farrell has kicked a touch and Bridge jumps in the air to, to keep the ball and play and last week he did it against Ireland really well or it might have been Moanga and this week it just doesn't come out quite come off for New Zealand Bridge ends up putting a foot on touch and it's England's line out so all those little 50-50s those little moments tend to add up and the momentum swings seem to be going uh, England England's way throughout the game the, yeah. the, A couple other things just uh, Gav to mention with, with the All Blacks it, like afterwards Steve Hansen admitted basically that he got it wrong with the back row selection Scott Barrett had some really, really positive moments. I, I thought as an individual, he played really well. He had some turnovers. He had that chase back. He he did make an impact on the game. But in terms of how it flowed, they missed Sam Kane in the first half. You saw obviously at halftime that they made an immediate substitution. And I think he, he possibly was considering it even before then. Sam Kane's just his ability to hit people. Um, and you saw that when he came on. I think it was the around the 50-minute mark. He absolutely hammers Maratoje. And then on the next phase, almost, he smashes Mako Vunapola as well. And England have to kick the ball away. That kind of stuff is is big in a, in a match. And you may not mo- notice who it is making the tackles, but it's invariably Sam Kane. As well as that, the breakdown obviously didn't go their way. And I think they missed him in that regard. Both in being able to plow over it on, on attacking ball and clear away those jackals. And then maybe put a bit of pressure on himself. He's not the most fluid jackler, but he does put a bit of pressure on the opposition ball. They, they did miss him. And Hansen, he admitted as much after without trying to throw Scott Barrett under the bus because he did a lot of good stuff. And the other thing, I want to mention one of the penalties there, the reversal. They gave up 11 penalties in this game again. And we mentioned that they'd given away 14 against Ireland, which was a crazy number. And it probably summed up just how poor Ireland were, that they couldn't even take advantage of that uh, absolutely crazy ill discipline from the, the All Blacks. 11 is really poor as well. Once you're over 10, you're in trouble. 
Um, and I think when they look back on the World Cup, that'll be a frustration for them. There are a lot of different bits in it, but clearly there was a sloppiness in their discipline that wasn't characteristic and they'll try and figure out exactly why it happened. But they did give England access with those with those penalties. I mean, some of them were a little bit soft. The Whitelock one, I'd say, they'll be frustrated by an on Farrell's reaction, probably not great, but you can't be shoving people in the face. It's just silly. It was a, a needless penalty and, and again, summed up that the fact that they had maybe lost a little bit of their usual kind of poise and control. Um, some of the penalties were, from their own point of view, very soft and, and easy to give up. So that'll be a frustration for them in hindsight as well. Yeah, tw- uh, 11 uh, penalties conceded and then 20 turnovers as well, which um, is, is relatively high, uh, even for a team that tends to play a, a kind of a high-risk game and attack as structured as it is. But as Owen alluded to a moment ago, that New Zealand team is obviously feared for what it can do in transition from defence to attack. But it was interesting, I thought, to hear Eddie Jones after the game speak about how England's best form of attack is its defence. And uh, we probably probably saw that to some extent in just how they capitalised on New Zealand's, again, uncharacteristic but remarkable volume of turnover zone. Yeah, absolutely. I was really impressed with both Curry and, and Underhill. There was a couple of key turnovers at crucial times in the game where, where they were able to wrestle back possession for um, England. And I think the mobility of England's pack and the mobility of that back road and, and the work rate that they're getting from them just, just allows for them to kind of... Uh, maintain that constant pressure through their line speed and then you obviously have to have some smart players and I think they just make those really really good reads out, out of the line to kind of almost anticipate where the ball is going to go and and it, it definitely influenced how, how New Zealand were able to attack and, and how they shut down their their normal kind of attacking framework that they they generally nine times out of ten break teams down with so I was really really impressed with um I guess it, the relentlessness and the kind of the hunger of their d- defense. I think the, another key moment in that second half was when New Zealand actually managed to sustain period of pressure and got through nine phases. And there was some lovely interplay between Kane, Sonny Billy Williams, who was on at that stage, and Reese. Um, and it got Reese down that right hand edge. But England scrambled really well into the corner and managed to push Reese into touch five meters out. And it kind of just displayed an or kind of relentlessness and a kind of hunger about the team that they they were just going to scramble for everything, which which I thought they did really well. You know, one of the interesting things I think about England as well, Murray, and uh, I think it was yourself who wrote about it on site this morning. I'm actually just looking. Yes, it was. But how they've evolved their game over the last you know year really not even a couple of years um eddie jones has made some big calls say over the last two years switching captains in the middle of a world cup cycle uh but he, he had some interesting quotes even after the game where he noted how uh it, the evolution of this team began on the south africa tour uh, the most recent south africa tour and um you know, he says we have we had a fairly solid team for the first two years, and we knew uh, we had to make changes to regenerate and reinvigorate. Like it's it's kind of remarkable how only what a year ago or or slightly more there were kind of calls for this guy's head in that job, and he made some fairly sweeping changes, not only in terms of personnel but in terms of how England play stylistically and tactically, and now they look fairly unstoppable going into a World Cup final. Just a, a really remarkable turn of events. Yeah, I think everything's come together really nicely for him. Like, First of all, he's in a really nice position to be able to make sweeping personnel changes because it's the biggest player pool in the world and there's so many high-quality players available. It still takes bravery to do that, though. You think of that tour in South Africa, Carl Sinter goes in as the first choice, Tyler Pop. I mean, this is just last year, 2018 summer. Um, Owen Farrell takes over the captaincy Elliot Daly go, goes to fullback and, and he's stayed there ever since Tom Curry only had one cap before that tour but he played in all three of the tests um, and then you think like you've had Rob Shaw Brown Ben Teo Dylan Hartley has never come back into the frame really um, and he's moved those guys on and they were pretty important figures in the squad for a long time so, so Sam Underhill is only what he's got 14 caps I think at the, at the moment so yeah there have been relatively recent changes as well as that he's had the luck I guess well, maybe it's not just luck. I, I would imagine their conditioning and how they've managed players plays into the, the lack, relative lack of injuries. But when you've managed to Alagi, when you've the Vunipolar brothers and you've Mario Atoje fully fit, well, anyone's going to struggle to stop you, no matter who your coach is. They're just freakish players. And, and not again, not a lot of coaches have that quality to choose. But they've done well to keep them all 
fully fit and firing and, and they're playing better than ever before, it must be said. Itoje in particular, like you think of his three turnovers, he was wreaking havoc at the defensive mall. Hammers Whitelock had so many big moments and less of the less of the ill discipline that kind of plagued him a little bit when he was younger. He's just making smart decisions all the time now. He's in the form of his life. As well as that, that tour was the start of Scott Wisemantle's um, leadership, I guess, of their attack. He came in as a consultant for that tour and made a really positive impression and got a, a permanent deal. The players really like him. He's kind of a career assistant coach. He's always been a, a guy kind of in the background uh, helping with attack. He was with Jones, I think, in 2015 with Japan as well. Um, he's a bit of a myself and Sean were talking about on the members podcast yesterday he's, he's a bit of a surfer dude he's a very different character um, and I think his kind of energy and his positivity has been really infectious around the England group and he's innovative and, and I would imagine that he's I suppose accentuated some of the strengths England had or some of the potential they had with their attack and and, and he's sharpened up things like those screenplays they use. They've always had that in their armory, but now it's done really well with all the little details nailed on, people square off the pitch, timing of pass, decision-making. Um, and he's probably been a good influence, along with John Mitchell coming in. And I mean, the RFU, or RFU, sorry, have, have paid a lot of money to have him there. He's a highly experienced defence coach and, and really probably should be a head coach somewhere else, but they've paid for him and he's done a really good job. So all of that's kind of come together at a nice time. And, and Jones certainly has been open-minded about about evolving and about adapting. He's always talking about that. you got to adapt within games. You've got to be flexible. Um, and I think he's probably shown that off the pitch. He's used the kind of advantages of the English system and, and the strength and, and resources we just mentioned there. But... Yeah, he definitely deserves credit for for bringing it all together at the right time and with a very calm leadership as well. He's always been on about winning this World Cup. He's always had that overriding goal of them proving they're the best team in the world. And now, as you say, they're a game, game away from doing it. Yeah, another man who deserves credit as he rides off into the proverbial sunset. Um, well, actually, he, he's just moving to Japan to continue his career. But a word on Kieran Reid, Owen, uh, who seemed pretty shell-shocked, actually, in his own post-match interview. Perhaps just the fact that all of his years and caps and success um, as an All Black and as All Black's captain uh, had sort of come to an end and uh, and come to an end in quite shocking circumstances, I'm sure, from a New Zealand perspective. Yeah, he's, he's, he's been a great servant to New Zealand rugby, hasn't he? I think he'll, he'll go probably go down as the best number eight in, in All Blacks history and he's got some pretty stern competition in that position over the years but um, yeah really led by example I thought he was pre- pretty honest in, in his post-match interview and was clearly clearly distraught about um, how it finished for them because they don't often lose do they I think it's 2007 was was the last time they'd lost a World Cup game so but um, he, he's been a great servant to both the Crusaders and New Zealand and, and probably goes off to Japan and, and gets a, a kind of a well-earned paycheck for the next couple of years um, but before he ult- ultimately retires but uh, yeah I think both how he kind of handled defeat and um, Hanson I thought was probably a credit to them and and uh, the culture that's been built in uh, in the New Zealand rugby team, I think, has been really, really impressive. And there's definitely a humility to to how they handle both uh, victories and defeats. Yeah. Well, speaking of humility, the semi-final on Sunday really brought us back down to earth. Uh, it was more of an arm wrestle between Wales and South Africa, one which South Africa ultimately prevailed and they will face England in a World Cup final somewhat poetically given uh, that is by Eddie Jones assessment where the evolution of this England team began in South Africa only last summer but uh, Owen I might start with yourself just get your your kind of general overall impression of the game and and where you feel South Africa just about edged it. Yeah to use a a football term um I think both teams parked the bus in this game. It wasn't just one team parking <laughs> the bus. Uh, neither, neither team wanted to really, really uh, play any kind of attacking rugby. I think um, the kind of damning stat, I guess, from an attacking perspective is South Africa only passed the ball 67 times in the game. And if you kind of reflect on the night before, Ben Young's threw 92 passes. So England scrum half threw more passes than the entire South African team. So it was very much... A, a territorial battle through the boot. I think there was 81 kicks in the game, so over a kick a minute. And um, South Africa were just kind of hell, hell bent on, on playing that territorial battle. And I think they had 
they had six lineouts in the game, mauled, mauled four of them, um, lost one, which is actually the first lineout they've lost in the entire competition. So fair play to Wales from that perspective. But yeah, w- Wales just could, couldn't really get any quality ball to to attack off. They, Wales had 15 lineouts, um, but 13, 13 of them, they won at the front either through their prop or through their front jumping pod. And it's extremely hard to, to launch off kind of kind of front um, ball off the line out and, and, and there definitely was opportunities and I think England will look at that quite interestingly because they'll definitely be able to manoeuvre their line out a little bit better but anytime Wales attacked attacked close and then tried to get the wit second phase there was definite op- opportunities like Nikosi who I who would imagine will be replaced by Kobe next week is a very naive defender gets very narrow and leaves a lot of real estate on the edges for um, for attacks to go after and, and Wales to their credit when, when they had any kind of parity or gain line ball they, they tried to get to an edge and exploit those but they just weren't able to do it to do it on enough occasions they just they just couldn't break the gain line what the ball carriers did do quite well was they, their shoulders were at the ground and they were really trying to fight the ground to kind of prevent that the South African choke tackle uh, which they're so good at holding ball carriers up but by going to ground early they denied themselves any kind of momentum or, or, or kind of ability to go forward and South Africa were just kind of as as game wore on were just able to kind of uh, repel any any Welsh attack and, and kind of slow the slow the game down and, and kind of uh, play it at their pace which was a pedestrian pace at the time I know ball and play was quite high but it, it was almost just kick to kick and, and it was it was a frustration frustrating occasion to watch and I don't think says did the games any favour there, there was often times the ball was run at the ruck and it would still take 10 to 15 seconds for someone to kick the ball and I think those laws need to be applied harder if the, if the ball is run at the ruck which generally takes one to two seconds if there is a competition but once it's won apply the five second law so teams have got to kick quickly rather than meandering back setting up these long breakdowns with blockers and then kicking which is is really really hurting the game and, and even at half time when I went down to the, the press room I looked out the back of the stadium and there was droves of people leaving the stadium um, probably mostly neutral supporters but it was as, as a spectacle it was just such a poor poor game of rugby rugby to watch and I know Razzie Rasmus won't care too much about how they get to a final but I just thought it was, it was a really really poor semi-final from a, from a, a supporter's perspective Hmm. A lot of those box kicks now have become almost uh, within themselves uh, a set piece, essentially, and how they're setting up and how much time they're taking. I suppose, Murray, if you were to, to you know, pick a silver lining from the game, it would be maybe that it's almost admirable that both teams were so committed <laughs> to the type of game that it was and, and just refused to deviate in any way. They uh, wanted a kind of a, a slug fest and ultimately... Um, South Africa just had a little bit of no, like really just won it on the scoreboard, but probably were if you had to choose the better team on the day. Yeah, it always. I, I, to be honest, it always felt to me like they were going to find a way to to grind their way to a win, and that's what the game plan was. Y- even if you think of it, of their scoring, you know, they go three 0 up with a scrum penalty. They go six three up with another scrum penalty. I think it was a maul penalty for nine three. Then they get a, a maul penalty for for nineteen sixteen to actually take them out in front, and actually the last act of the game is a scrum penalty as well. So they, clearly they were focused on um, grinding down the Welsh pack using their physical superiority, which they felt they had, and and proved to be the case. You know they pick six forwards on the bench, six brilliant forwards who probably could have started for any other test team really most of them they're they're an excellent bunch of players and I, I wouldn't be surprised maybe even if they make a couple of changes and bring some of them into the starting team but use the bench in a similar way again almost have two packs relentlessly grinding and trying to squeeze the opposition for those penalties as well I do think there's a little bit more to the box I mean you think of them playing the All Blacks the, the last several meetings and, and they've been far more attacking minded um, they obviously feel that this style of, of play is, is perfect for beating opposition like Wales where maybe they don't have to expend as much attacking energy be as ambitious take as many risks because the weird thing is that when they did maybe show a little bit more ambition you think in the first half the only time that they actually there was one offload I think in the first half and it was the box they actually decided here's a chance to kick return with ball in hand and they go down the right hand side Lucanio Am makes a beautiful offload inside to Vili LaRue and he finds the clerk. I think Josh Adams stops him with a really excellent tackle. But it was a, a really exciting passage, especially amidst, amidst all the kicking. 
Um, and then they just chipped it away on the next phase. DLN, they, in fairness, he got close to putting into Mount Pimpy's hands, but they turned up, uh, turned over possession. And then even for the try, it, it featured an offload from Pollard before the advantage came. He he attacks the line, he offloads to, I think it was to Malcolm Marks, maybe, or I can't remember exactly who. And then a couple of phases later, he ducks back underneath the rock. He, he goes against the structure slightly. He finds a, a prop in Reese Carey and beats his tackle, gets through, the, the penalty advantage comes, and then you see LaRue probably showing what he can bring as a second playmaker. He sweeps in behind the rock, takes the ball, um, and he gets outside Gareth Davies. I think Khaleesi gets a nice little block on Davies just to to give uh, Hadley Parks a doubt, and he kind of bites in on LaRue. He, he gets the pass away to Dialende. And then I know it is a missed tackle from Bigger, but you got to give Dialende the credit for that kind of stop-start step. And, and then he swats away Bigger's arm uh, for a really good bust, and, and he powers through, uh, to, uh, I can't remember, he powers through the last tackle, um, for what was an excellent score and it was based on a bit of that ambition and a bit more variety and I think they have that in their game especially if Chelsea and Colby is fit which which for me was part of the plan Razi Rasmus was quite honest about that last week he said listen don't read don't listen, uh, don't read this the wrong way and he said please don't make headlines of this but we have to think ahead to a final because we've only got a six day turnaround and if you think about how they went and won this game really for a six day turnaround it was, it was perfect they didn't get any injuries they didn't run high meters, so the, the players will be relatively fresher. They used all their forwards quite sparingly, so none of them have played 80 minutes or or emptied the tank in any way at all. Um, and there is definitely more to their game. There's there's an ability to, to get the ball into Ches and Colby's hands. I, I think Pollard is not a good passing 10, but certainly he's able to to shift the ball to there. And, and Am is a smart footballer. We saw that with the offload as well. So uh, I, I don't quite think that they were almost holding a lot of things back just to get through this World Cup semi-final. I think you got to respect it as a fixture. I think they felt this game plan was was more suited to the occasion, but I think that they they have slightly more tools than they showed. And, and Eddie Jones mentioned that today. He said they they can play in different ways. He called Razi Erasmus very cunning, and and certainly he's a, a smart tactician. So there'll be slightly more to it as well. On top of it, though, they have shown that, listen, we can grind your pack down. We can go toe-to-toe with absolutely anyone. We can bring Snyman off the bench and he'll eat up your mall and he'll carry and he'll offload at the tackle and probably add to the attack that way as well. And then you've got uh, a really good mall, really good scrum. And also probably crucially, Pollard absolutely nailed all his kicks. He, he got better with the pressure of a knockout game. Uh, some of those kicks were very difficult, but he slotted them yeah. very calmly. And again, that'll be a, a positive for the box going into this game. I think England are four-point favourites, which for me is probably just about fair. And uh, it would be, look, if England get back to that level again, well then they are completely deserving and probably the best ever World Cup winners I hope they do because it's riveting to watch but the box will definitely feel they have the the strengths and tools to to drag them down maybe and stifle them and uh, be in the game I, I would say Murray that they definitely have the ability to play a wider game. The issue is now that's two games in a row where they've gone to a high kicking game and it's very, very difficult to get to change the flow of your attack. And even in that second half, there was moments where there was definite run opportunities and the pass either wouldn't go to hand or there'd be a, a kind of unforced error or a knock on. And when you go to a very high kick volume game, to change the flow of your attack to a kind of more dynamic running kind of high pass frequency game is very, very difficult. And, and I, I think the problem will be now they've got two, two wins in knockout rugby by playing a certain way and to have the bravery to change that will be interesting to see if they do. But I think when we're looking ahead to England, the other weakness I see in South Africa is their structured defence off scrum. Like one of Wales's line break was in the, in the first half then the right-hand side where... South Africa only defend Pollard on the left and, and Wales just go 8-9 and play north then a right-hand side to give him 15 metres to run at Mpimpi and then four Wales is trying the second half they go to it, it it's a 2-2-2 two, two, two setup so two on the left it's Pratchett on half penny in behind the scrum and then two on the right and and while the Wales scrum comes under pressure, um, it's a really, really poor read from Am to come in on on Thomas Williams and, and just allow Williams to shift to Davis. And, and then it's a simple two-on-one for Davis to put Josh Adams into the left corner. And, and there's definitely vulnerability to South Africa's structured defence, both off scrum and line out. And I think England are going to have far better set-piece quality than Wales had. And I think that's going to be an area where, where England will look to, to attack South Africa. Yeah, that, that probably points as well to the fact that 
they're quite still quite new in their journey really i mean razi rasmus mm. took over ended 2017 and he's had to put so many building blocks in place it is a pretty remarkable turnaround in that regard the the fact that they've got to a world cup so soon in in the kind of resurgence under him and they definitely deserve a lot of credit for that and um Jacques Nienaber obviously doing a really good job with the defense maybe away from the scrum their their phase play defense is is really powerful and at times you couldn't see a way for Wales to break it down once they once they got into the the structured phase after phase and the carriers were were struggling maybe to to make a dent and as you say they were going for those choke tackles it is really smothering at times um but really to to go from the position they were in 2017 where it was a real shambles when Erasmus took over um, to, to a World Cup final is, is really impressive and, and probably worryingly uh, I was talking to Sean about this yesterday is kind of Erasmus after the game probably alluding to the fact that they're starting to get their house in order they're starting to get some of the structures and conditioning and super rugby teams aligned and players being maybe managed a little bit better and, and that kind of thing he's learned a lot from his time in Ireland and the, the central system and like if South Africa start to get theirs in order and, and maybe keep some of their players or um, you know, if the if the ran bounces back in anywhere, and, and players don't leave in that mass exodus, well then, God, how good are they going to be if if he has his hands on them all the time? Owen, from your point of view, should South Africa actually deviate from the type of game plan they deployed against Wales, um, or should they actually rely upon their own just sheer bulk and hope to turn it into a kind of a a fifty fifty mano a mano contest? hope to achieve kind of parity in the collision and take it from there. Like, would it be wise for them, given what you're saying and how difficult it can be to um, to kind of flick a switch and, and play a more varied game uh, week on week? Would it be wise to uh, to do that or should they actually try and keep it simple and, and hope to just grind England down as unlikely as that seems? I, I think they're definitely going to have to involve it. I think... <laughs> You have to give Wales so much credit. I mean, the doggedness they showed in the game just to stay in the fight, I thought was incredible and, and how depleted they are. And you think they lost Toby Faletau before the World Cup even started. They lost their first choice 10 and Gareth Anscombe before the World Cup even started. Jonathan Davis clearly was not fit and I don't think the plan would have been for him to play 80 minutes, but because George North went off before halftime, uh, they lost their starting tight head. So Wales were absolutely depleted by injuries and, and still had a chance to win the game like I think if they had their time over again when the game's uh, tied at 16 all Wales have a, have an attacking line out and, and they go to a mall against South Africa which I thought was was not where Wales should have looked to attack South Africa and South Africa managed to kind of bring them all down and then it gets into that kind of slow ball sequence and it's absolutely heartbreaking for Alan Wynne-Jones that he's the one that gets penalised for holding on when to be fair Adam Baird is on his on his left uh, he should be his immediate cleaner on his outside and he steps away from the breakdown I couldn't understand it and leaves his captain isolated to concede the, the game defining penalty so if Wales had managed that last that last attacking play a little bit better I think they might have got into either drop goal territory or may have got a penalty out of South Africa so a depleted Welsh team were within one score of beating South Africa and, and it's a very very different England team they're going to face next week so they're definitely going to have to show as Murray's talked about a little bit of evolution to their game to kind of to threaten England but on the other on the other uh, side of the coin is there was a lot of broken England bodies at the end of that game against New Zealand uh, guys limping off the pitch Johnny May obviously had to come off to Alangi um so they're going to have some broken bodies. Obviously, you've got a, a day longer preparation. But yeah, I, I think South Africa are going to have to evolve. I don't think how they played against Wales is going to be good enough to win the World Cup. Murray, in, in other sports, um, having an extra day to prepare might not seem like a great deal. But just put it into context how big an advantage it is, even just that one extra day to uh, to recover, etc. Yeah, we've discussed it before probably and it is big because essentially it's taken one full 24-hour window out of your regular build-up. Um, it was funny, we were actually talking about this in, before the match, myself and Owen over in the, in the press room in Yokohama and we were both kind of remarking how crazy it is in a World Cup final that someone has the, the unfairness of a six-day turnaround and coaches absolutely lose their mind over this kind of stuff. It's a big deal because, as I say, your whole 
routine is is completely out of joint and you've got to sacrifice some things whether that is recovery or whether that's time on the pitch whether that's the organization session that you usually have on a monday where you're walking through everything and and maybe lightly jogging through it just to get those those structures and and, and plays from from line out and scrum just nailed down and um, because then on the tuesday you've obviously got to go pretty hard for your, for your session obviously at this stage of the world cup there's maybe a little bit less of that, but it is frustrating for for coaches certainly. Razi Rasmus, in fairness, tried to shrug it off, and all the, the South African players have done so, and that's what they absolutely have to do. You can't let that get into your head. Maybe other teams have been guilty of of obsessing over that kind of thing at times, and and letting it kind of define their week rather than playing the the hand they've been dealt. So, I think the box, as we, as we mentioned, they probably didn't have as much collateral damage and. They got through a, a semi-final relatively unscathed with, with Kobe to come back as well. So they'll be thankful of that. Um, and I think they'll be able to put out their, their fully fit team. Ideally, they would have had that extra day, but I don't think they'll use it as an excuse. And, and if they do allow that to filter around the group, then they've already lost the game. Owen, it'll be the last time we hear from you ahead of the game. So uh, with that in mind, which way do you see it going? And um, who do you see winning and why? I think the key will be can England replicate the performance uh, they delivered against New Zealand because if they do I, I I would fancy them heavily to be able to beat South Africa but it's a, it's a high pressure game I, I think I think the huge benefit England have is the core the nucleus of that group is kind of Saracens based and and they are used to winning big games whether it be um, Heineken Cups or Premiership Finals so they have a kind of winning culture at the at the core of their team, which I think is so important going into a big game like this, and and potentially the South African players aren't as used to winning, whether it be uh, Super Rugby or at international level. So um, it, it's going to be interesting how the game plays out. I think if it, if it's a slow tempo game and it becomes a bit of a dogfight, then South Africa are absolutely in with a chance. But I think if if England can maintain the variation to their attack through their their run pass or kick game and kind of potentially expose South Africa's backfield and get their, their wingers turning where they're, they're going back to receive balls and then you're, you're trying to get those guys to kick from, from their defensive end is probably where England see the game kind of being in their favour. So I'd fancy England, and to be fair, if, if England continue with the style of rugby they've been playing, then I think they would be worthy, worthy winners of a World Cup as much, of it, as, much as it pains me to say it. <laughs> And it will mean vindication as well for Murray Kinsel, who called us from a long way out, to be fair. Stuck to his guns. Uh, gents, thanks very much. Uh, Owen, we'll catch you, I think, next Monday. And Murray, we will be back with you later in the week, uh, Thursday. We'll preview the final again in, uh, in yet more detail. But it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, lads. And thank you to Volkswagen proud sponsor of Irish Rugby and also this podcast we will be back later in the week hope you enjoy your bank holiday Monday and until Thursday take it easy I don't think we've met before but I'm the referee on this field if you're working as an accountant and you lose your job nobody really notices Leinster could offer me five mil a year I wouldn't go <laughs> <laughs> Rugby Rugby Weekly the first pass oh, 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 oh.